One of the, the big questions that people ask when it comes to life, the meaning of life, why we're here, is the question, where do we come from? How do we get here? Where did life begin? And in the West, over the last 170 years or so, there have been two dominant answers to that question. The most dominant, sort of the mainstream viewpoint, which is a stranglehold on our universities and educational institutions, and much of the scientific establishment is Darwinianism. And the Darwinianist would say that roughly four billion years ago, some microbes formed, and those microbes evolved over extended periods of time into the billions of years, actually. And over time, they developed into you, into me. Now, people like to dabble in the science of that and try to wrestle with the truthfulness of it without always thinking about the implications of it. And here's the thing, while we wanna teach on the science or lack thereof of that worldview, I wanna make a, a comment about the implications of it for our purposes today. See, every worldview and every belief that you hold has implications, has consequences for the good or for the bad. And if you believe that your place here in the world was essentially by happenstance or accident, then that means that there is, there is no author of life that can place demands upon you. There's no ultimate foundation for authority or meaning or value and worth. We literally make, have to make those things up to function in relationship with one another. The other worldview, the his, most historic worldview, is the biblical worldview, the creational worldview, which teaches us that we are in fact made in the imago dei, the image and likeness of God, by a direct act of God. And that God has declared and endowed us with infinite worth and value, that he is the author of life. And it's to him that we must give an account. And if we have rebelled against him, he is not afraid to judge and damn us. But if we repent and believe and re-surrender to him, he will grant us the gift of eternal life. Now in this world within which we live, you'll notice that God has put in place natural events, natural sequences, natural order. There's many things that we see day by day that are not miracles. They're just part of the way God has designed the world. The world. It's, they're in keeping with the laws of physics and biology. You know, if two animals breed, baby animals are born. There's weather cycles that take place in the world. We observe those. Sometimes we fly balloons over other countries to observe them. <laughs> There's patterns to the way the world works. There's things that we expect to take place. And these aren't miracles, but every once in a while, the author of life interrupts the natural order and by definition, when God interrupts the natural order, that is a miracle. There's many things in life that are really cool. 
But a miracle, by definition, is the interruption of the natural order. It's, it's dead people suddenly living again. It's the barren woman suddenly being able to conceive. It's someone who is lame suddenly being able to get up and run around a room. Those are miracles. And when God does miracles, when God interrupts the natural order, there's a reason for it. There's a reason for it. And this is what I want us to consider today because this is what we're asked to consider in Acts chapter three. Why does God interrupt the natural order? Why does God save lost people? Why does God heal the lame? What is his purpose? What's his reason? Is it so that we can be entertained? Kind of like a big magician. Rabbit in the hat, rabbit out of that hat. Woo, that was fun. Fascinating. Is that why God does it? Is he trying to entertain us because he knows that otherwise life is kind of mundane? No, he's doing it for a reason. He wants us to encounter him and believe in his message. Now, the book of Acts, like many of the books of the Bible, contain records of divine miracles. It doesn't contain a record of every event that ever took place in everyone's life, but it does contain select events. And in Acts chapter three, there is a message about the author of life. That's what God is referred to as in verse 15, that he wants to deliver to us. So let's read the miracle first. And then I don't even have to make my own sermon up because a couple of the apostles step forward and they interpret and preach a sermon on this early miracle. So we don't have to guess why God performed this miracle. But let's start with the miracle. Verse one of Acts chapter three. Now, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. You might think that was 9 p.m. or 9 a.m., but it's actually 3 p.m. by our standards. Keep in mind that when Jesus came, it wasn't to create a new religion. The true faith has been the same from the beginning of the world to the end of the world. There's different eras, there's different aspects to it. God slowly reveals more and more of himself. The Jews were expecting and should have seen in Christ that he was the long-awaited fulfillment of all the messianic promises. They didn't do that. And so, of course, over time, the Christian message became less and less Jewish-looking, if you will. The Jewishness of it faded away. But you'll notice that what these two Jewish men were doing, who were Christians was visiting the temple and they were praying, which Jews did morning and afternoon. So this isn't anything unusual. They're going there to pray. And as they go through one of the gates into the temple complex, which no longer exists in its full form, this is what happens. And a man was lame from birth. Notice he wasn't lame in a car accident. He'd never walked. He wasn't going through physio physiotherapy. This guy had never known what it was like to walk. So he's lame from birth. That's a detail that's important. He was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called beautiful to ask alms of those entering the temple. So this is kind of how it worked, right? You would give your tithes. That's one form of giving, your 10%. Sometimes you were called upon to give offerings. Hey, we're building the temple. You need to bring your offerings, physical objects, your gold, your silver. But then there was also this concept of almsgiving. 
true charity, where someone's in need, and as you're entering into worship, this is a great place, I and mean, it's kind of hard to worship God if you've overlooked your neighbor. So the, the lame, the blind, the deaf would often be brought by families or friends or thoughtful people, and they'd be placed at the gate, and they would essentially have to beg for their daily bread. So this is the scenario. They're entering the temple. Now, seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. Nothing unusual up to this point in time. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold. Now, is he like one of those guys that goes into a restaurant and orders a five-course meal and prays for his food, and then when it comes time to determine the tip, just leaves a Bible tract? Is this like an example of the, the cheapskate Christian who, well, you know what? I know you got a physical issue, but I'm not into that. I'm just into the proclamation of the gospel. Is that his issue? No. Peter and John had no money but they did have something that would permanently fix this man's problem because God had endowed them with miracle working abilities. He said to them, I have no silver or gold, but what I do have, I give to you in the name, this is critical, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. You're like, yeah, right. That doesn't happen in the natural order. People that cannot walk don't just rise up and walk. Can we agree to that? It's true. It's not how it works. Even if you have a temporary injury, it takes a while to be healed. That's the natural order of things. But sometimes God interrupts the natural order. So he took him by the right hand and raised him up. And immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. Keep in mind, he had never learned to walk. Not only couldn't he walk, he never learned to walk. Learning to walk takes a little while. You've seen babies toddling around, bumping into things. It takes a while to walk, but instantly, not only is his body healed, but his capacity to walk is granted to him by a direct act of God. Well, all the people saw him walking and praising God, recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple, asking for alms, and then there's a response. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what happened to him. So we have an event and then we have a response. The event is a miracle. The response is, wow. But when you have an event and then a response, you then need to consider the meaning of the event and the appropriateness of the response. So the man here, just to recap, is lame, lame from birth, needs financial help. The apostles don't have the capacity to meet that need. But they declare to him as apostles in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth and they heal him. Now this is really, really important because what it reminds the reader is where the power comes from. Whenever God interrupts the natural order, whenever God uses human beings to do miracles, to preach the word, to lead people to Christ. Whenever God interrupts the natural broken order of this world, 
It is only possible for life change to happen, for miracles to be performed, for wonders and signs to happen, if it is by the power of God. It cannot be concocted. It can't be manipulated. It can be anticipated, but it can't even be expected. And the one that is solely capable of ultimately performing such things is the Lord Jesus Christ. And they understood this, that they represent him. In no way, shape, or form did they want to get the credit. They didn't want to get the applause. They didn't want to be the ones that were tossed up on people's shoulders and surfed through the crowd. They wanted to make sure that this man understood and those that were watching this and those that would read this for thousands of years to come and the Holy Word of God would know where the power came from and it's the Lord Jesus Christ. But why did God choose to heal this man? Why, why does God, let's ask a broader question, why does God bother to interrupt the natural order at all? Why does he bother? To make us go, ooh, that was, that was cool. That was entertaining. I'd rather see that than Netflix. Is he doing it to compete with the entertainers, the, the magicians, the comedians, the stand-up comics of our world? No. It's not to entertain us, but it's to deliver a message. We see the response as wonder and amazement. Why, why does he want wonder and amazement to erupt from his interruption of the natural order? Well, ultimately, ultimately on a macro level, it's always about God's glory. It's always about God's glory. It's not about the glory of the preacher, the apostle, the church, the denomination, the movement. It's about Christ being exalted. Even, even in the Christian church, as we study history, there's nothing wrong with studying history. The great men and women of God and what they've done and how God's worked. But you see people on the internet just elevating saw this meme, like pick your favorite, all these historical people. Which one would you want to be your pastor? Which one would you want to be your professor? It's like this focus on the individual. Charles Spurgeon, wow. John Owen, wow. Billy Graham, wow. This fixation on the individuals. This, this subtle, excusable idolatry of the man or the woman of God. You know, all of us should want to pour our lives out for Christ and to accomplish great things for him and then die in obscurity. That'd be, a, that'd be a life well lived. Nobody remembers your name, but they do remember the name of the one you declared. And the apostles did a great job of reminding us of that. So here's the, the initial response. Now we need to read about this. The initial response of those that were blown away by this. So while he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astonished, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people. And here's what he said. So this, his, his message is to the Jews, the Jewish audience. That's all that was present. Or maybe there were a few Gentiles there, we don't know. But the message is directed toward the Jews. Men of Israel, he declares to them, why do you wonder at this or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we made him walk? In other words, it's not our power that caused this and it's not our super spirituality, our piety that caused this. So if you're coming to give us the applause, don't bother because it's neither our power or our piety that brought about this miracle. 
Again, brothers and sisters, in both subtle ways and not so subtle ways, we have to be careful not to attribute the work of God to the work of God's servants. God does have servants. I hope you're one of them. But we don't attribute the work of God to the work of God's servants. It, it may be tempting to do so, to elevate a man or woman that is clearly committed to the things of God, pious, or is exceptionally gifted. It may be tempting to elevate them. But in doing so, what we actually do is rob God of his glory, the glory that he alone is due. You've heard it said, be humble or you'll stumble. We need to be humble in our proclamation of the gospel. The true servant of God will always point people back to God and then fade into the woodwork and be completely fine with that. Well, here's now the extended explanation to the men of Israel, to the descendants of Abraham of what God was doing. Notice the Jewishness of the audience. 13, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. So the first thing they do is sort of give them a little slap upside the head and say, hey, Jesus is the one, just want to remind you, that you delivered over to a pagan tyrant to be put to death, check this out, even though he wanted to release Jesus. Pilate didn't want to send Jesus to the cross, but he buckled to the society around him. And of all people advocating for the death of the Messiah was the sons of Abraham, God's covenant people. So he, he, he's confronting them. This is, we're going to see here what the gospel is all about. So he's confronting them. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. Remember that? Release Barabbas. Yeah, we'd, we'd rather have a criminal, a known murderer released than Jesus be let go. So literally, the innocent one goes to the cross and the criminal is released. Barabbas? You know, Barabbas' name, to the best of my knowledge, never appears in baby books. I've never met a Barabbas. He's like the arch villain. He's going to name their kid Barabbas. But brothers and sisters, know this. You are Barabbas. And I'm Barabbas. The, the criminals, those that have offended God and disobeyed his law, we are forgiven. We are released from the penalty of sin as the innocent one goes and is substituted for us. It's the gospel here in a nutshell. So they remind the listeners of this. You killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead and to this we are witnesses, which by the way is one of the qualifications of an apostle to be a witness. And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man his complete health in the presence of you all. Who performed the miracle? Christ performed the miracle. 
And now brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance. So now we have some understanding of sin here. Sin is both willful at times and based on ignorance at other times. I know you acted in ignorance as you did as, as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, so again, he's pointing them back. He's mentioned the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the God of your forefathers, Abraham. He's identified them as Israel. It's a Jewish audience. He's pointing them back. Talks about their rulers. God foretold it by the prophets that this Christ, this Messiah would suffer. He has thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore. Here's the take home. Here's the action step. Repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. That's grace, by the way. That times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus. This is a reference to the second coming. Jesus had come. He descended to the Father. We're told he's going to come back and there's going to be times of refreshing or restoration. So again, whom heaven must receive in the time until the time for restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his prophets long ago. Moses said, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your brothers. He will be Jewish. In other words, Jesus was. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets also have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaim these days. You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers saying to Abraham. So up to this point, notice the, again, the Jewishness of the sermon. It's a Jewish audience. He's rooting his message in Jewish history. He's reminding them of God's covenants. You'd think, well, I'm not a Jew, so this message isn't for me. This must just be a message for Jews. But all of this Jewish backdrop, which he's emphasizing, now leads to this declaration. And in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Meaning those outside of the family of Abraham. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first, to the Jews first, to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. So this is without question a very Jesus-centric sermon. And it displays a mindset that we must all adopt and it declares truth that we must all receive. What is the mindset we're supposed to adopt and what is the truth we're supposed to receive in this Jesus-centered message? Well, the first thing I want to just kind of emphasize or draw out or put my highlighter on is what is said in verse 18 and then in verses 20 to 23. What is this message doing? It points people beyond the servant to the Messiah. There's this emphasis and don't look at us. It's not about James and John, Peter. It's not about you. It's not about your pastor, your church name, your denomination. We could extend that out. It's not about the servant at all. It's about Christ. There's a passion 
among these apostles to point people to Christ, to give the credit to Christ. And they talk much of Christ's work. They remind the listeners of what Christ did. In verse 18, they remind him of Christ's suffering. And his Christ would suffer, it says there. The suffering of Christ is part of the gospel message. It's critical to the gospel message. That Jesus was crucified instead of the criminal being crucified. That Jesus was crucified instead of you being crucified. That the innocent one was sacrificed instead of the guilty one rightfully being punished for his or her crimes against God. And then in verse 20 and following, I'll reread it. And that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. So we learn there that prior to the restoration of all things, Jesus will return. This is why I'm not a post-millennialist, by the way. Prior to the restoration of all things, Christ will return. And then it goes on to say, Moses said, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul that does not listen to the prophet shall be destroyed from the people. So there's several elements there that are worth drawing out. The second coming of Christ is critical to the gospel message. If he's not coming back, we're all doomed. When he comes back, he's going to restore all things. He will set up his messianic kingdom in its fullness. It's already here, but it's going to be super evident. His suffering is critical to the gospel message. Those that listen to him will receive salvation. Those that rebel against him will be destroyed and cut off from the people of God. So we have references to the suffering of Christ, his status as a Messiah, his status as a prophet. He's referred to as both in the text, the Christ and the prophet. He's the one that will return from heaven to restore all things. And here's the response. The positive response is we must listen to him. We must listen to him. Which is more than just, oh yeah, I heard you. It's a full-bodied acceptance of who he is. And the negative is if we don't listen, we'll be condemned by not listening to him. By the way, this squares up with what we read in the next chapter. You probably have heard of Acts chapter 4, verse 12. One of the more well-known verses in the Bible, and it says there, and there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby you might be saved. You must be saved. That's an exclusive gospel. Now, I I know, I know in Canada, we like to pretend we're tolerant and we like to pretend we're inclusive. So people might say, man, that doesn't sound very, very inclusive. I listened to a funeral sermon this week. It was all about inclusiveness. You know, if you put some money in the Salvation Army can at Christmas and you smile at someone, God has gone to prepare a place for you. Just be good. Just be good. The entire message was revolved, revolved around that. Just be good. You can be good. And by the way, you kind of already are good. And then you'll, you'll get to heaven. This is not the gospel of the scriptures. And we would be quite derelict in our duties to allow people to think such things. So someone might say, hey, you're not very tolerant. 
Yeah, you're right. You're not very inclusive. Yeah, you're right. We're into truth. And if that truth convicts or brings shame, so be it. But the ultimate goal of truth is so that someone might be humbled and repent and find healing in Christ. So the message of the gospel is, it is exclusive, actually. There's only one way to heaven, and it's through Jesus Christ. So the words of every faithful preacher must align with this message. The purpose of miracles is to point us to Christ's person, his power, and to call us to repent and follow him. The gospel also, we've seen this already leaked through in the text, boldly confronts sin. The gospel of Jesus Christ boldly confronts sin. It's not afraid to call out sins of ignorance any more than it's afraid to call out sins that are willfully and deliberately and premeditatedly committed. Verse 17, I know that you acted in ignorance as did your rulers, but you're still culpable. Verse 19, repent therefore and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. So sometimes, yeah, we sin out of ignorance. You, you know what it's like. You look back at something you did, maybe as an early Christian or before salvation, you're like, what was I even thinking? Why did I not know better? Sin of ignorance. Are you still responsible for that? 100%. And then oftentimes we just deliberately rebel against God, but we're responsible for both. So we call out sin. Now, while this call is specifically for Israel to repent, and especially for those that participated in his crucifixion, really it, it's a message for everyone, to repent and believe in God, to acknowledge our own sinfulness. How many of us sin and need to repent? Give me a percentage. 100%. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We, we know that. Self-evident proven through life's experience. We've, we've sinned against God, we all have. So we all need to repent. Now, interestingly, on one hand, the writer alludes to the fact that people sin, they sin in ignorance. Obviously, many passages of scripture talks about the, the, deliberate, the deliberate willful rebellion of man. And when people sin and there's great evil in the world, we might at times ask, like, has God kind of lost control of the world? It's almost like out of control. It's like everyone has a capacity limit. So if you're a parent, you got two kids, you're like, whoo, this is a lot of work. We're gonna go for three, whoo, this is a lot of work. You get to five, six, maybe 12. After all, it's like, oh, we gotta hang up the skates and get off the ice. Like this. Well, you might be a really high capacity person. I could handle 10. Okay, how about 30? How about 50? How about 100? How about 1,000? Like, you have a capacity limit. You might be a high-functioning employee at work, all sorts of awards and plaques on your wall, but you have a capacity limit. Oh, I can work hard, bring it on. Okay, we'll give you 80 hours of work. I can handle that. 120, 160, 200, 240. We'll give you more hours of work than you could possibly finish in a week. And you'll hit a capacity limit. Everybody has a capacity limit. Is that kind of like God? You know, he created too many elephants and zebras. And so when he created man and woman, it's like, Okay, this got a little out of control. Sin is beyond me. Look at the sin in our world. Is God out of control? Is God in charge of this world? Or is he sort of just like, oh man, I hope the population reduction advocates are right because until we can get the world back down to three or four, I can't handle it. 
No, no. In spite of human sinfulness, which you are responsible for, we're told that this is still all part of God's prophetic plan. The passage reminds us that they killed the author of life. The author of life. Now think about that. There's a lot of different attributes and titles given to Christ in Scripture, King of Kings, Lord of Lords, the Lamb of God. But author of life, that's pretty foundational. It reminds us that he is creator. Colossians tells us that. And it, it interprets Genesis one for us. John one interprets Genesis one for us. The triunity of God is involved in creation, but the eternal logos, the son of God, spoke the world into existence. He's the author of life. The word literally means the originator or source of life. And theologically, that means that he is the creator and he is the divine one. Which by the way, take that, those of you that continue to maybe deny the full deity of Jesus Christ. He's the creator. That sounds pretty godlike. He's the author of life. That sounds a lot like divine language. This is Jesus. They killed the author of life, but we're told that in the redemptive plan of God, all the families of the earth will be blessed by the sin of Israel. So God even redeems the sin of Israel, the rejection of the Messiah, for the benefit of the families of the earth. God foretold this through the prophet. So here's what we hold this intention. On one hand, the sinner bears the guilt for his or her, or if it's a collection of people, their own sin. That's true. Absolutely true. You are responsible for your sin. Can't say, well, my daddy made me do it. Well, I, couldn't help. I, just, I was born into a sin-sick world. I couldn't help it. No, you're responsible for your sin. But at the same time, God is very much still in control. And somehow he's working out his plan of redemption through us. And brothers and sisters, we don't always understand why. You look at some of the most despicable sins in the world. Maybe we've participated in them, or maybe they're sins that are almost beyond our comprehension. And some of them are really heartbreaking and hard to fathom and hard to understand. You wonder, like, why doesn't God just jump in in the moment and save the child about to be aborted? Why doesn't God just come in and put his hand in the way and stop these two tribes from committing genocide against one another? Why doesn't God stop evil in its tracks? Is he out of control? Is the world beyond his capacity? No, somehow we, we mourn the reality of sin and human beings bear the full guilt for their sin, but God is still working out his plan through it all. And so we must both repent of our sins and also trust in God's providence, knowing that the restoration of both faithful Israel and the families of the earth are part of Christ's eternal plan. Both Jew and Gentile can find forgiveness in Jesus Christ. And there's no tricks to it. This isn't like one of those exams where there's gotcha questions on it. The plan and path of salvation is clearly marked out. We know what the final judgment will be based on. There's not going to be any tricky lawyer that steps up and says, well, I know Jesus did this, but I have, a, I have a, uh, some new evidence you know, against Aaron Rock that he sinned in a way Christ's blood cannot possibly forgive. We know what the path of salvation is. We know who the sin bearer is. We know that Jesus Christ is going to return. We know that he will restore all things. We know that both Jew and Gentile can find forgiveness in Christ. 
Why this miracle? Why does he target this one man out of all the people in that area that were probably lame or had lost their sight or couldn't hear? Why this one man? And why didn't he heal everybody? Why didn't he overturn the law that says, if you sin, you'll die? Why didn't God eradicate sickness from the world? Well, he allows the world to move forward in its broken state, but he interrupts it now and again, a divine interruption we could call it, and he heals this lame man to show his grace and to show his love, but also to create a venue to proclaim his eternal gospel. We've talked about human sinfulness and the identity of Christ, but there's a third element of the gospel And that is the gospel proclaims grace and the way of salvation. It proclaims grace and the way of salvation. You look at verses 25 and verse 26. You are the sons, it's still very Jewish. You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers saying to Abraham, and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God wanted to remind the Jewish listeners that if you look carefully at some of God's earliest statements, he'd already prophesied that while he had set his sights on the physical seed and the descendants of Abraham, that his intention, his intention was ultimately to bless the families of the earth through the faithfulness of this people. And God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. So the covenant that God made with Abraham and his offspring was for them. That's the language, for them in the moment. But we also discover there was always a long range plan God had in mind. It was for Abraham and his descendants, but there's a long range plan, a strategy, an end result that God had in mind. And it is that in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. And thank God for that, because many of us aren't Jewish. So how is it that we are to understand the offspring of Abraham? Christ. He's a physical descendant in this humanity from, from Abraham. First, he came to turn the literal children of Abraham to faith in God. And then the children of Abraham who are children of Abraham by faith to faith in God. The Gentiles, the goyim, the nations of the world. Romans chapter nine bears this out. Paul talks about his kinsmen in the flesh. He's talking, he's a Jewish man. He's talking to his literal fellow Abrahamites or Israelites, Jews, talks about his kinsmen in the flesh. He says, to whom belong, this is the language he uses, the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the law, worship, promises, and even Christ according to the flesh, meaning that Christ is in his flesh, your brother. He's also one of the descendants of Abraham through David's line. So he declares that in Romans chapter nine near the beginning there, but then he goes on to say, listen to this carefully, but it is not as though the word of God has failed because Israel as a whole, with plenty of exceptions, turned away. For not all who are descended from Israel 
belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. What does that mean? It means that you're not automatically going to heaven because you're a Jew. You're not automatically saved because you're a descendant of Abraham. Sometimes people think every Jew in the Old Testament is going to be in God's eternal kingdom in heaven, so to speak. No. You still have to exercise faith in the true and living God. It wasn't your ethnic lineage that saved you. It was repentance and faith in the true and living God and in his promises. So he, he delineates between the faithful descendants of Abraham and the unfaithful descendants of Abraham. But then he goes on to say, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. What does this mean? We don't have to guess. This means that it is not the children of flesh who are the children of God. How much more explicit could it be than that? It's not the children of flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise who are counted as offspring, those who have received Christ by faith. So in this respect, without diminishing the physical seed, because there's a hyper-emphasis on it, many, many books of the Old Covenant, and there's literal blessing, and clearly God is working with Israel. There's no, no questioning that. You can't, you can't deny that. Without diminishing the physical promises to, to Abraham, Abraham has spiritual seed too. And if you're a believer, that includes you. Abraham has spiritual seed. Those who have been saved by the ultimate son of Abraham, whose lineage by faith is tied back to the Lord Jesus Christ, who found hope and forgiveness in Christ. So it seems pretty clear. I know there are some that like to take the Bible and divide it up into phases and eras and dispensations and chop it all up and say he's working differently at all points in time and there's the people there and there's the people there and there's ne'er the twain shall meet. We have all these nuanced conversations about the continuities between Israel and the church and discontinuities between Israel and the church and the current political state of Israel and the future of Israel. We get into, we get into the weeds and good people differ on their answers to some of those questions. But on a macro level, there's one people of God through history. There's only one way. There's only one way to ever enter into God's eternal kingdom. That is through repentance and faith in God's revelation of himself and ultimately to have your sin forgiven by his Messiah, looking forward or looking back. No one throughout any phase and era of history has been saved by obedience to the law. Read Galatians. It's always been by grace, always been by grace. And it always will be by grace. And when we stand in heaven, there will not be two classifications of people. There will be those that have repented and acknowledged the true king. And that's it. And in this time, when we preach the gospel, we need to remind people of this because there's the same temptation to preach some sort of a gospel of law, a gospel of works, a gospel of good deeds, or a gospel that would say, well, you got a leg up because of your ethnicity or your background or whatever it might be, because your parents were believers. So you get a little bit of a leg up, you get a bit of a boost. You're temporarily under the covenant, or whatever it might be. 
No, you're saved by faith in Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. So declare this message and trust in him. And if you haven't received him as your Lord and Savior, receive him as your Lord and Savior today. Repent of your sins and trust in Jesus that you might be saved. And fortunately, we have a God who's very gracious and merciful and is willing to not only seek, but also save the lost. 